the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. A happy and blessed Good Friday and Passover to all of our faithful friends in the audience. I hope everyone has a great Easter. Uh, again, you can follow us at uh, danprofshow.com. You can find podcasts there. You can also get the podcast at iTunes and Spotify. On social media, at Dan Prof Show on Facebook and Twitter, at ProfDan on Instagram. And we begin with the uh, possibility that we may have a date for when we can resume something approximating normal life, at least something approximating normal productive work life. Reporting in Washington Post and elsewhere that Trump is angling for May 1 as the at least beginning of a phased-in opening of the economy based on where the virus is attenuating most significantly. Bill Barr, actually, Attorney General, on with Laura Ingram, uh, extended interview that he gave Laura Ingram. He had uh, this to say about his posture, and I think sort of uh, implicitly he was reflecting the president's posture as to what we should be thinking about after the 30-day guidelines have expired the end of April. When this period of time this uh, at the end of April expires, I think we have to uh, allow people to adapt more than we have and not just tell people to go home and hide under the bed, but allow them to, to use other ways, social distancing and other means, uh, to protect themselves. Let me see if I can maybe translate that in even plainer speak. Uh, Bob Luddy will help me. He's the CEO and founder of Captive Air, which is a uh, manufacturer of kitchen ventilation systems. He, writing at uh, spectator.org, Let Our People Work, I think you see where this is going, writes, The American Republic has never shut down our economy based on any real or perceived threats. It's time to return to common sense, to solve problems, not to central planning and groupthink. A depressed economy will lead to a much poorer and sicker society, leading to far more challenges in the end. And interestingly, that's a point that Bill Barr made, too. Cancer researchers are at home. A lot of the disease researchers who will save lives in the future, that's being held in abeyance. The money that goes into these institutions, whether from philanthropic sources or government sources, is going to be reduced. We will have a weaker health care system if we go into a deep depression. So just measured in lives, uh, the cure cannot be worse than the disease. It's interesting to zero in specifically on the healthcare system. You know, we're talking about saving lives on an ongoing basis. You know, the uh, lives of people who have heart disease, who have cancer, who have all of the other maladies that uh, people get. What is the healthcare system going to be like for all of us on a go-forward basis if we crater our economy? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Scott the Cowguy Shalady, Fox Business regular and a longtime institutional trader. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Uh, happy Good Friday, I guess. Uh, yeah, and well, we need faith as a refuge in these times. But um, so uh, 16 million first-time unemployers over the last three weeks. And uh, as you are oft, uh, want to point out, uh, the employment, our unemployment numbers are, are lagging indicators. So probably an indication it's even the unemployment issue is even more severe than that. Yeah, the 16 million, almost 17 million actually filers for unemployment insurance equates right now to about a 13 to 14 percent unemployment rate from a low in February of three and a half. So we're definitely about 10 percentage points higher as we sit here. Uh, and it's going to go higher because next week's jobless claims are also going to be bad as well. So I'm uh, I'm I'm probably not as hopeful as a lot of other people out there about a fast rebound recovery. I don't think that's going to happen. And I think that this is going to be a two two year problem for sure. I don't think uh, we're going to be able to adjust like everybody thinks we are um, as quickly because this is a 20 trillion dollar economy and we have absolutely shut it down. There's carnage on the other side of the ledger, which would be the economic side of the ledger, which I'll, you know, I've put in the mathematical terms equals loss, loss of life. You've got a tanking economy, which has higher crime rates, higher suicide and higher poverty rates. There is a real amount of death that goes along with that and arguably higher, much higher death than what the virus could ever do. So I'm, this this whole thing has just been um, I don't know who well, I don't know what my country is really I, I can't believe I'm actually living through this uh, and and I think that um, it's going to be a, a big case study for years and you know fifty hundred years from now. Uh, speaking of uh, mitigation effects, but on the economic side, uh, is there any way to uh, project and predict what the impact of things like the protection the uh, payroll protection program the uh, loan forgivable loan program will do? To, uh, to borrow a phrase, flatten the curve of both unemployment and the uh, larger damage that's being inflicted? I, I, I think the government just thinks that they can't be seen to be doing nothing, even though doing nothing is still something. But they don't want to do that. They, they don't want to be caught flat-footed, so they've thrown a lot of money at the problem. And, and generally speaking, that is the, men, the standard can menu of what you do when you face an economic shock like this. But the problem is, is they're not really addressing the psychological shock. And the psychological shock is why I say it's going to take a lot longer. And but, I but think I mean, I've said this before. But, but I mean, a hundred, so you're reporting uh, uh, as of uh, Friday, $100 billion plus in loans that have been dispersed. Um, so loans, uh, it's only a weekend. Loans are getting applied for. They're getting approved. They're getting processed. And so that would ostensibly hold at least some percentage of people who would otherwise be uh, sent to the unemployment lines on in, on the on the employment rolls, as well as maybe bring some people back if they don't want to take the four months uh, of unemployment instead. Right. Well, that's just like you said, that's just that's deadening the curve, but it's also extending the curve. Right. When you bring the push the curve down, you bring the edges out. And so yeah. really all you're doing is delaying those people filing for unemployment because ultimately there, there's going to have to be a solution at the end of the money that they're getting. And we, we won't have a solution by then. We'll still be dealing with all the, the, the problems. And so that's why I say, yeah, the government, it's good. That's going to be money that people didn't have in the first place, but the, I think the outcome will ultimately be the same. And it'll just be delayed. And what about uh, the, the May one? I mean, again, look what's happened the last three weeks. I mean, the idea may one hooray. Well, that's another three weeks from now. I mean, a lot can happen. A lot of damage can be imposed in three weeks. Uh, yeah, I think our unemployment rate will, will go over 20% between now and then. I think uh, the loss of life will be 
four, man, three to four times greater than the, uh, the than the virus because of the, the the crashing economy. And I think that because of what the economy will do, it will take you know abruptly two years. I mean, people always ask me a lot, what's how, when is this going to be over, right? When is your May first, Shelley? My May first is when a seventy five year old couple can go, you know, celebrate their fiftieth wedding anniversary in a chowded in a crowded restaurant in Chinatown. All right. That's that's when it's over, right? And when, and not be arrested. There, and not, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so think of think about a think about a restaurant that's got a hundred seats in it, right? They're not gonna be able to have a hundred seats when they reopen, if they reopen. And so they're gonna have to cut thirty seats out of there to give everybody some, you know, psychological space. Well that's thirty percent of your revenues right there. And so you have to really and the smartest guy in the room I think was actually um, Gordon Ramsay, when he said, or somebody said, one of those kitchen guys said, the way, the only way that you're going to get yourself out of that problem is you're going to have to turn those tables over more. So there might be time limits on tables now because they've lost 30% of their revenue uh, in the first place. So we're going to have this big new adjustment and there's going to be a lot of, you know, collateral damage, unfortunately. And it's going to take, there's not going to be a V recovery because we just can't do it. We're not equipped to do it. And the biggest towns, which are the biggest economic engines, New York and Chicago and say even the East Coast or West Coast, they're not going to, I don't think they're open on May 1st. Yeah, well, right. Yeah, I mean, sure. You, you may have uh, some governors that are going to be some of the last dominoes to fall rather than the first, just as uh, was the opposite with respect to the shutdown. So you're right. It's going to be uh sequential uh, not uh not probably not uh, uh simultaneous um I, I wanted to get your your take on this um uh uh michael burry of course of big short fame uh tweeted this out and, and he has been just blasting the uh, shutdown policies but he uh, tweeted out that um uh this is worth noting uh, small to medium-sized businesses in America account for 83% of the non-farm payrolls, as opposed to S&P 500 companies. That's 17%. And he uh, tweets, a lot of people in New York and Washington, when they think of the stock market and the Fed, they think that's pretty much everything. But there is so much more to America. And he's talking about those 83% of employees in this country who work for small to mid-sized businesses. A great example is, I've got a friend of mine, he's my age, 55, and he, uh, his wife called me last night because they've seen my tweets and my, and, and the things I've been putting out. And I've been on that, you know, Barry bandwagon for four weeks now and much to the chagrin of my family, because they were actually genuinely worried about my safety because of the threats I was getting about opening up the economy. And it looked as though I was choosing dollars instead of lives, which I wasn't, I was choosing other lives over lives. But <clears throat> having said that he, uh, March 13th, my buddy got a raise and a promotion. March 28th, he got fired. Right. That is middle America. When we come back, I want to pick up uh, our discussion by talking about some of the Fed policies, including their two $2.3 trillion uh, lending expansion this week, as well as what one Illinois governor has suggested about when Illinois, the timeline Illinois is on reopening and what that may mean for other states. More with Scott Shalady, Fox Business regular, right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Scott Shalady, Scott Cowguy Shalady, Fox Business regular, as well as a uh, longtime uh, trader, T R A D E R. Uh, despite what some people on Twitter are saying, uh, Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's just sticking with us there uh, from your bird sanctuary in the Southwest. We appreciate it. 
Um, I want to pick up on um, something that um, uh, Illinois governor, your former Illinois resident, Illinois governor J.B. Pritzker had to say with respect to Illinois' timeline on reopening or tolerating large gatherings. I do not see how we are going to have large gatherings of people again uh, until we have a vaccine, which is months and months away. Um, I, I would not risk having large groups of people getting together uh, anywhere. And I think that's hard for everybody to hear, but um, that's just a fact. Uh, that's just an amazing statement because he's on the Zeke Emanuel 12 to 18 month plan to allow for <laughs> gatherings and thus businesses to be open and thus sports to be played. Uh, according, if, according to what he just said, now he may be confusing a vaccine with a therapeutic, so he may be able to plead ignorance here. But uh, it's been pretty clear from the briefings, Fauci and others, 12 to 18 months for a vaccine. And you just had a governor of one of the largest states in the nation say we're not opening the state back up effectively until there's a vaccine. Uh, well, it'll kill it'll kill an already bad economy anyway. So, I mean, he can stick a fork in it. You know, June 1st would be too late for Chicago. But uh, clearly he's not doing that. And maybe he's just got a bout of dyslexia and he meant gatherings of large people, right? Maybe that's what he meant to say. <laughs> well, it certainly would be, yeah. Well, uh, and, and, you know, but you were you were mentioning before the break about the uh, psychological effect, and this was interesting because Darren Ravel, who's a former uh, report, sports reporter for ESPN, tweeted out this uh, poll from uh, Hall Sports. 72% of Americans and 61% of self-identified sports, sports fans said they would not attend a game until a vaccine was available. They're not attend a game. So, I mean, that puts you through uh, through the, the rest of this year, uh, baseball, basketball, football, hockey. Uh, the stadiums are going to be empty, ostensibly. It's, it's just such a shame that we've been able to let mainstream media run away with this story and scare people so badly. I know there's been death, and, and that's unfortunate, and I empathize. I've had my own in my own family, not from this disease, but still, I can empathize. But there is another side of the ledger that they're totally ignoring and they've thrown 162 million people under the bus. And so by letting the mainstream media get in people's heads as much as they have, this is the unintended consequence of you letting mainstream media run wild. This is what happens when you start banging on about, uh, you know, masks and all these things when, Hey, if you're not taking this as seriously next year, when it's the flu and we lose 50,000 people, I mean, where is the foe outrage them? That's what drives me crazy. So we've got people so scared now when this is ultimately going to be something along the lines as far as loss of life goes in the range of, of the flu. And yes, I'll never win that argument because they'll say it's because of all the great mitigation factors, but those mitigation factors were factored in when they made their, you know, their initial bad projections and still brought them down. So it's, it's this psychological media that if you turn on the television now, I can't do it anymore. I mean, the only two things I like are news and sports and I can't watch the news anymore. And there's no sports because the first 40 stories are all about the coronavirus. People are so afraid. So this is what you get. So you, I don't know, you, I guess maybe, I don't know, I'm not that political. I, I really, I, I don't want to go down the road of them wanting him out of power so badly that they're going to blow this up. But at the end of the day, they, they, it was a nuclear bomb. They didn't just get him out of Oswald. You know, they, they ruined the entire economy. Uh, it, perhaps what we should really be afraid of is uh, what the Fed is doing. The two point, <laughs> the, the 2.3, I mean, if anybody understood it, the $2.3 trillion expansion of lending and bond buying this week, uh, where, as the Wall Street Journal opined, they're rescuing weaker credits as well as the strong uh, non-investment grade corporate bonds. REITs now qualify for federal programs despite their credit risk. High yield and muni bonds, uh, muni bond prices also rose. 
what is going on there with the Fed? Well, they better not look under the bed because the boogeyman might just be there. And I think that, they, again, I've said this before on your show. I mean, clearly their imagination is their own worst enemy. And yes, they're trying to throw money at a psychological problem. And yes, they have to be seen to be doing something. They can't seem to be doing nothing. But they've absolutely blown up our balance sheet. And in the end, I think it'll be by $10 trillion When I think Obama, we all made fun of him because he blew it up by $4 trillion. So <laughs> this, this is going to be all for something. I mean, I'm still not sure. The numbers aren't in yet, so I could still be wrong. I mean, I'm not perfect, but it seems to me that the economic, psychological, and, and the, the general overall damage that we've done to everything in the hysteria over something that came out of China as far as a virus, I, I, I'm, it's just going to be studied for a long time because it's just been one big shame. Well, and, and he, the thing here, too, different than 2008, even though the, the, the causes of, of the response are different, but you have um, you just have them taking much, uh, much riskier bets. Now, you're talking about uh, uh, so as the as again, going back to the journal, the Fed will, in effect, be buying the worst shopping malls in the country and some of its most indebted companies with the uh, credit risks they're taking in this bond buying program. And uh, why not separate the strong from the weak when you're talking about uh, these uh, uh, this backstopping? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point. I mean, at this point in time, remember, all that money they're spending is our money, number one. So, they don't, you know, the government doesn't make money. And, and number two is why not use this as a time to call the herd? I mean, that could be something that really comes out of this is we could actually be stronger because we've gotten rid of a lot of things that we don't need, or at least we're actually starting to fail before this all started. But it, I still argue, I mean, this is not going away psychological. That's my issue. You know, now are you seeing the same things? I'm out in Arizona, Scottsdale. Are you seeing the same commercials, all the garbage about we're in this together all now? Everything, yeah. all the new commercials. Mm-hmm. That's just going to propagate this myth. And maybe not myth is too strong a word, but yes, people are dying, and that's unfortunate. I have to say that over and over again to keep the people off Twitter from, you know, wanting to kill me. But at the same time, <laughs> the irony. you can't do – yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you can't do – what you're doing to this economy and not have, you know, collateral damage, which is going to be a greater loss of life. But nobody seems to care. Well, and, and, all, but, and also, I mean, nobody's paying close attention the way they should to what, how exactly the money is being distributed since it's uh, our money. And, um, you know, it's not unlimited, at least not unlimited without consequences. Uh, it, another piece, Vanity Fair by Bethany McLean, who, of course, is uh, – one of the co-authors of Smartest Guys in the Room, about the Enron collapse. She uh, writes, think of private equity firms as the banks of the coronavirus. They're too big to fail because of uh, the, because they invest public pension funds. And she's saying, you know, these these uh, private equity firms that have one point five trillion in cash on the sidelines are also in line for essentially federal backstopping as well. And and again, it, do we see the federal government both on the, the, the monetary side as well as the fiscal side choosing Wall Street over Main Street? Or choosing the 17 percent over the 83 percent, as Barry would yes, say. Yes, right. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, there is absolutely. That's the problem is, is that they can't take a fine tooth comb to the issue in a short period of time. They have to get out this machine gun and spray everything. And that's the issue. And in doing so, there's indiscriminate things that happen. And I think that's absolutely going to be one of them. That's going to be something that doesn't quite work out. And, and they didn't have enough time to really think it through, because even now, I think that there's some better ideas coming out, even about the $1,200 check, right? How long is it taking to get to people? When I think Mark Cuban, love him or hate him, some of the things he says I disagree with, but some of them he, you know, I do like. 
he had a good idea. Hey, if you've got a checking account, just have the federal government guarantee a $1,200 overdraft to every single checking account out there. That gives the money to people yesterday. That's a good idea. Then you don't have to worry about checks. You don't have to worry about deposits. He is Scott the Cow Guy, Shalady, Fox Business regular, and longtime uh, financial markets expert. Scott, thanks as always for joining us. Enjoy your bird sanctuary in Scottsdale. <laughs> thanks. See you. Have a good See weekend. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and in his wide-ranging interview with Laura Ingram, Attorney General William Barr, who I think is inarguably one of the more thoughtful members of uh, this or any other presidential administration had uh, this to say about what he has witnessed from the uh, D.C. press corps during his time actually at these daily task force briefings as well as viewing them. The stridency uh, of the partisan attacks on him has gotten higher and higher and it's really disappointing to see. And the politicization of, of decisions like the hydroxychloroquine has been amazing to me. Before the president said anything about it, there was fair and balanced coverage of, uh, of this pr- very promising drug and the fact that it had such a long track record that the risks were pretty well known. And as soon as he uh, said something positive about it, uh, the media has been on a jihad to discredit the drug. It's, it's quite strange. For more on uh, this and the task force briefings and the state of the response to the pandemic, we're pleased to be joined by Daniel Henninger. He's the deputy editor of The Wall Street Journal's editorial page, and he's uh, written a bit about the briefings, as have as has the editorial board at the Wall Street Journal taken a position, which, of course, generated a response to the Wall Street Journal editorial board from the president. Daniel Henninger, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. So uh, jihad, uh, as uh, Attorney General Barr says, with respect to the president's pronouncements on all things COVID-19 related. Yeah, it's uh, jihad. It's uh, just kind of like a a tribal war, Dan, uh, which we know has been going on between the president and the press since uh, the day he was inaugurated way back when. Uh, We ran through the Russian collusion narrative, uh, the Mueller report, then there was the impeachment, and uh, at every step along the way, the Washington uh, press seemed to feel they were in a, a blood struggle with the president of the United States. And so here we have arrived at a national crisis caused by uh, a virus, which uh, last time anybody checked really is apolitical. And uh, so when this drug came up, hydroxychloroquine, uh, it is uh, the attorney general suggested they indeed began to try to discredit the president's suggestion that it might be helpful uh, in the treatment of coronavirus. And, uh, the whole thing uh, with corona, with uh, hydrochloroquine and uh, the ZPAC, erythromycin, is so beside the point, Dan, because right. as the attorney general is suggesting, both those drugs are approved for use. And if a drug is approved for use, it falls for doctors under what is known as the practice of medicine. If they want to treat their patients with it, they are allowed to do that. It's not up to the president or the Washington press corps. 
Well, it's it, that's the thing. It seems like it's completely a manufactured melodrama. Uh, yeah. Doctors can prescribe it if they think that makes sense for their patient and consultation for their patient. And uh, the clinical trials will continue. We'll see what the results are to see if we can make a more uh, categorical statement about its use as an antiviral therapy. That's all. You know, there's nothing ideological about it. Right. And, you know, coronavirus is an absolutely new virus. Uh, it's uh, something we are learning about as we go along. Uh, there have been reports in the last uh, day or so about how some doctors are discovering or coming to the conclusion that for many of these at-risk uh, or uh, coronavirus patients who are in intensive care units, uh, what is not suggested for them is using a ventilator, that a ventilator yes, may be right. doing more harm than good. Uh, instead, maybe something like um, sleep apnea machines. Now, that's simply because they're discovering that, you know, blood oxygen levels for uh, coronavirus are not behaving the way they do for traditional pneumonia. So, again, everybody is kind of feeling their way through this crisis. And uh, how the press got into a battle with the president over this one drug uh, just kind of reflects the status of uh, relationships down there in Washington. It, it also reflects a, a mentality, right? Some people are conferred oracle status. They are omniscient. And so don't even question them. Uh, and other people are know nothing about anything. So no matter what they say is to be discarded. And there's just not a lot in between, depending on, you know, where you stand in terms of uh, political popularity with the D.C. press corps. It, it, it is remarkable to watch. And and I want to pick up there uh, when we return with Daniel Henninger, deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Uh, we're going to talk about his piece, Caught Napping by Coronavirus, right after this. Stay with me. Stay with me. For tonight you better stay with me. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Daniel Henninger, deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page, uh, whose uh, writings I've long admired. So it's a pleasure to have him on the show. And uh, speaking of which, uh, you penned a piece this week, Caught Napping by Coronavirus, which tackles one of the other uh, what has become uh, a, po- a political footballs, uh, and that is preparedness. Uh, Susan Rice was opining on it recently. There's been widespread criticism from left media about Trump being unprepared. This administration had every warning. They should have known. They should have done this and they should have done that. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. Uh, versus, um, you know, other uh, more uh, reporting that has more institutional knowledge associated with it, which goes back 25 years from reports to reports from intelligence agencies, as well as task force after pandemics, including H1N1 uh, after the the 2009 outbreak there during the Obama administration that suggests, you know what? And even George W. Bush, who's gotten all this credit for focusing on pandemics in his second term. um, You know what? There was a, a lot of presidential administrations and a lot of Congresses, Republicans and Democrats controlled 
that uh, got these reports. Uh, some took them more seriously than others, but nobody put together the collective political will to uh, to to supply the national stockpile at what was needed for this outbreak or otherwise take the evasive actions that we've taken since the outbreak. Yeah, I, I think that's the the blame game uh, of the sort that Susan Rice is engaging in is is really so pointless. Look, the the World Health Organization was in China late last year. And they didn't call this a pandemic until and until March, right? Right. Uh, for whatever reason, in part because uh, it looks as though WHO has been captured by China, and then the president himself uh, mobilized domestically in March. Should both of them have made this call in January? Uh, I guess so. In hindsight, it looks like they should have. But nonetheless, it strikes me as an intelligence failure, as I was in my piece saying, uh, the Surgeon General Jerome Adams last Sunday said which was going to be our Pearl Harbor week. He meant death. And I think it's akin to Pearl Harbor, which was a massive intelligence failure, just as 9-11 was an intelligence failure, which is to say, in those cases, we knew a threat existed, but we just missed seeing that it was imminent. And as you were suggesting, National medical authorities around the world knew about the threat of pandemics going back to 2000 when SARS uh, emerged. And I think one of the reasons for the slowness of the uptake in the United States and indeed in Europe, Dan, across Europe, is that the Asian nations that have handled this pretty well, such as South Korea, Taiwan and Singapore, they acted quickly because they had had real life experience. Uh, over the last 10 or 15 years with SARS, MERS, and the swine flu. Uh, They had to do uh, a degree of mobilization to uh, mitigate deaths from those uh, viruses. So they already had in place systems and the experience of having these kinds of viruses spreading through their populations. We did not. And uh, as a result, like any other sort of crisis or preparation, preparedness that one does for emergencies, it kind of gets put on the back burner, both physically and intellectually. And I think that in large part explains why the U.S. and Europe were slow picking up um, the urgency of uh, coronavirus. Well, the other thing, too, is just that there's the political reality. And Yuval Levin uh, over at National Review wrote about this, uh, talking about the George W. Bush administration, where he was a health policy uh, staffer. And he talked about, you know, yes, there was this push to do pandemic planning. And and George W. Bush, after uh, reading a, a book about pandemics, was particularly uh, attuned to uh, this issue and wanted uh, game planning around it. But uh, by the same token, you know, me and other uh, Homeland Security staffers and so forth, we were focused on counterterrorism measures. We were focused on X, Y and Z. And these were real time exigent circumstances that we also needed to respond to. And so, you know, there's one thing about something that may happen down the road. And yes, you want a game plan and you want to be able to hand something off to the uh, the next administration. You want to be as forward looking as you can. But at the same token, there are all of these other deals on the president's desk or the president wants staff to respond to and, you know, rank order prioritizing them uh, in hindsight, looks obvious in the actual during the actual fog of the administration. It's not so obvious. 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, that was uh, the kind of analysis that uh, was done on Pearl Harbor by this uh, brilliant book by uh, Roberta Wolstetter called Warning and Decision, which uh, did indeed say that in the fog of war, people are busy dealing with a lot of other issues and problems and uh, things like preparedness for any given event uh, takes a back seat. People come to the conclusion that because they're busy, someone else is dealing with those preparation details and uh, things fall through the cracks. And, um, you know, we discovered there will be a commission, no doubt, after this to try to see how we can do this better. Uh, I do think that um, the World Health Organization is going to have a lot to answer for. Mm. Uh, the fact is there was a virus. They had identified a virus in Wuhan, China. And it was at that point that probably alarm bells should have been going off all over the world. But I'll tell you, just make one small last point here, Dan, that uh, some of the people who look at preparedness for pandemics have discovered is that back in the 1990s, when these sorts of viruses were emerging, countries uh, such as India and Latin American countries were reluctant to let the World Health Organization in because they feared that if word got out that they had one of these viruses, it would shut down travel and tourism and economic relationships. And I think obviously that's what we saw China do with this thing in uh, Wuhan. They were afraid the, the information got out, it was gonna do economic damage to them. But the implication of facing squarely one of these viruses is that there is going to be economic dislocation to travel, for instance, it's going to be less airline travel. And no national leader wants to come to that conclusion and probably not doing it as expeditiously as they should. Hopefully, we'll do better the next time. He is Daniel Henninger, deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Uh, check out his uh, most recent piece, Caught Napping by Coronavirus, which I will uh, tweet out as well. Daniel Henninger, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to talk to you, Dan. Take care. the Dan Prof Show is something that uh, we've been discussing on this program for several weeks now is the antibody testing, representative sample testing, so that you can get models in which you can have confidence in the essential of the conclusions and the projections so that you can game plan resources accordingly. And then with confidence, reopen the economy. That's the point. It's not about uh, testing numbers. It's not even about infections. It's about making sure you have uh, information that is representative of the larger population, because otherwise you're flying blind, which is what we've been doing. And so Tony Fauci this morning on CNN talked about the antibody testing that is going on in some quarters. You heard on this show yesterday, Principal Deputy CDC Director Dr. Ann Shukit saying that, yes, 
the CDC is doing some antibody testing. We also have other reports around the country I'll get to, but here's Fauci. Actually, at the last task force meeting, the, the individuals responsible for both developing, validating, and getting the test out are saying, and I'm certain that that's going to happen, that within a period of a week or so, we're going to have a rather large number of tests that are available. Yeah, well, chop, chop, so we don't have the same delays that we had back in February with the CDC testing, of, uh, with the testing for the, the virus itself, the CDC and the FDA being bottlenecks. We got 3,000 tests done in the, week of, in the month of February, three weeks in February, the same three weeks in March after Roche and the private sector have been mobilized, more than 1.1 million tests done. And now we're over 2 million tests done. So don't let that be a bottleneck because it is important. And uh, and and you can synchronize the testing as is being done with the virus, Roche and Abbott, as well as uh, the CDC product. Right. Of course you can. And uh, a country that's done that, that gave us to give us some insight is Iceland. Iceland has tested more than 8% of its population for the virus. That's 14 times the U.S. rate. It's been screening the general public as well as people who think they might have COVID-19. Um, about 1% of the volunteers, public, general public screening, uh, have tested positive. Half of them reported no symptoms. So uh, Iceland also does contact tracing, quarantines infected people, but there's no general lockdown and it seems to be working. Their fatality rate? The death rate of all of those who were sampled in Iceland, 0.013 percent, 13 one hundredths of a percent. That's uh, lower than the influenza death rate in this country. And so if it turns out that uh, Fauci uh, was right in his guesstimate, 25 to 50 percent of the public has already been infected as asymptomatic. And we're a long way down the road of our herd immunity, achieving herd immunity then we can begin the phase in in earnest. We don't have to wait till May 1 or any magical date. Let's begin it in earnest in areas where we have a real handle on the data. Mike Pence mentioned at the briefing yesterday on Thursday night that county-by-county uh, county data. So if we can get the, the antibody testing that gives us a full picture, gives us that denominator, county-by-county, region-by-region, state-by-state, then we can begin the opening, the reopening in earnest, which is what we should do. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Mitch McConnell took to the Senate floor yesterday to make the case for a unanimous consent to move $250 billion more into the Payroll Protection Act, the forgivable loan program for businesses with fewer than 500 employees, which is where about 83% of Americans are employed, those sorts of enterprises. That was blocked by Democrats because they want to take this opportunity to get more money for states and localities, to get more money for hospitals, to uh, mint up a couple of uh, $1 trillion coins. If you want to follow Rashida Tlaib's wonderful proposal, <laughs> people, wow. 
Rashida Tlaib's proposal, if people didn't hear yesterday, $2,000 on a debit card for every person in America for more than three months, including people here illegally. And then $1,000 a month after that, then she yangs it after that, $1,000 a month for a year after the crisis ends. And the way you pay for it is have the U.S. Mint mint up two $1 trillion coins and then pay for them at face value. It's, if it's that easy, um, why don't we have them print up 24 of those $1 trillion coins, and then we can eliminate the U.S. debt? In fact, we could have them print up 110 uh, of those $1 trillion coins and then eliminate the U.S. debt and all of the federal government's unfunded liabilities. I mean, it's just that easy to turn into Zimbabwe if you would like to. So Mitch McConnell had this to say about his uh, colleagues on the other side of the aisle. I want to add more money to the only part of our bipartisan bill that is currently at risk of running out of money. So I was surprised to see this simple proposal met uneasily by the Democratic leadership. The distinguished Democratic leader and the Speaker of the House sought to use this crucial program to open broader negotiations on other topics, including parts of the CARES Act, where literally, listen to this, Mr. President, literally no money's gone out the door yet. No money has gone out the door yet. The Democratic leadership has suggested they may hold Americans' paychecks hostage unless we pass another sweeping bill that spends a half a trillion dollars doubling down on a number of parts of the CARES Act, including parts that have not even started to work yet. The country cannot afford unnecessary wrangling or political maneuvering. Treating this as a normal bipartisan, a normal kind of partisan negotiation could literally cost Americans their jobs. But uh, Democrats have uh, bigger matters to attend to. Selena Zito joins us. She's Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor, and author of the bestseller, The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. Selena, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Talk to us about uh, what's happening on the Hill, your, your perspective on that from, you know, sort of the uh, reporter for the every man and every woman out in the hustings. You're already north of $100 billion that has been dispersed through the program that had an initial $350 billion in funding. We've seen the unemployment filings over the last three weeks. Uh, it seems like there's legitimate concern that this fund will run out of its first allocation and is going to need more if we're going to stay closed for another even three weeks. I think that people are taking a look at this, if people that are even looking at this, I will tell you, in, in my traveling, and I haven't stopped traveling all over the country, people have really stepped away from watching daily politics. That does not mean they stepped away from watching the president's daily press conference, but these kinds of political, uh, I'm not even sure what, what word I use, hijinks, um, wow. this virus has sort of made people say, that's it, we're done, super crazy. But... You know, what happened yesterday wasn't a good moment for the Democrats in that this was a pretty easy bill to just vote. Everyone just sort of jump on. It was clean and it continued the funding. The Democrats made it, again, about putting, you know, things in it and their little happy meals. That's what I always call them. And I don't think that... The American people at this moment really have the patience for that. They just want what they think maybe they don't need, but they think their neighbor needs. And they don't want the typical politics that you, of course, saw yesterday. I wanted to get your sense of the media coverage of this, too. There was an interesting piece uh, at Real Clear Media by a a fellow at the George Washington University Center for um, Cyber and Homeland Security. And 
Uh, he looked at uh, what essentially what the numbers show, looking at media coverage through search results and so forth, uh, both uh, in January and then when when everybody supposedly knew, uh, according to Joe Scarborough. But then also just generally speaking, how it's been covered. And what he finds is that in January, it wasn't just impeachment. What the media was most covering was the Democrat primary for the presidential nomination. Yeah. Right. And then since that time, they have cast the pandemic as a political and economic issue rather than a health issue. Everything is forced through the funnel of politics. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a, two things going on here during this pandemic. A lot of smaller newspapers where there's still trust in information have continued the collapse only more rapidly. Again, that a lot of people are then forced into getting their information from larger news organizations, which aren't located where they live and don't share their values. And then you have the larger news organizations then leading the information with partisan politics and with a heavier hand in some more support democratic ideals. And I mean that with a big D. So all we talked about in January, as you said, was impeachment. And or who's going to be the nominee? Will Elizabeth drop out? Will Pete stay in? Will Joe survive? Those kinds of stories. Oh, wait, the president closed the border with China? Oh, he's a racist. Um, Like, those were the three things that kept circling the news um, narrative every evening. And so you fast forward to today, and it doesn't matter what the president says. You know, whether you like him or not, it's pretty obvious to see you can't cut a break with my profession. Um, This is a president in, in my lifetime, and I've been around for a long time, who's never enjoyed not even that sort of honeymoon period that presidents typically get in the first couple months of their presidency. I mean, they were talking about impeaching him before he was even inaugurated. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the Wall Street Journal opined about the briefings and then, of course, Trump opined about the Wall Street Journal opining. But, yeah. uh, but, but you know, they, they sort of take a high-handed approach, and it's sort of the general criticism of Trump, which I largely share, is some of the tangents that are a bit tone-deaf and unnecessary, uh, some of the punching down that's unnecessary. But by and large, I, I, I think you're right. You get so little long-form interaction with your political leaders and policymakers in a transparent way in real time that's not filtered. I think they're uh, generally incredibly valuable, and it lays bare uh, who President Trump is in many respects, as well as those around him, and who the D.C. press corps is. And I'll tell you what, for as much as, yes. pe- as, much as people are saying, oh, you know, I, w- I don't know if they're helping him and th- this and that and the political consultant class on the Republican side I'm talking about, you know, which are th- yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who always have, you know, uh, who always are, are about to soil themselves and, you know, anything that's not sort of conventional. I think there is a real value add there. And I think uh, you're con- consistent with the value proposition of draining the swamp. This is stripping the veneer off the whole thing. And so you get the good, the bad and the sometimes weird of Trump. And the press corps. And I'll tell you what, Rachel Maddow wouldn't be uh, suggesting that uh, news uh, networks stop covering those briefing sessions if they weren't effective. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And see, one of the things 
that I have always found interesting about President Trump and or candidate Trump. He has never, he has always been willing to make that risk to, to let his good and bad side show because he understood that it was blunt, but also it was revealing um, about not just his, you know, rivals, but also in, in uh, about my profession. And it is something that he, my profession, he's always believed was um, at the worst corrupt, at the least very biased. And, and so he has been willing to put himself out there um, to not, like I said, not only to get the information out, but for you to see everyone as they are, not just him. She is Selena Zito, Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor, author of the bestseller, The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. Selena, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. I hope everyone has a happy Easter. You too. Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time. Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time. Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, if you've got some downtime on this Easter slash Passover weekend, uh, take uh, the time to check out No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. This is the number one political documentary of 2019. This is the film that was put together by Dennis Prager, our friend and colleague, and Adam Carolla that details how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas uh, if uh, you're conservative. Uh, in places like Hollywood, on social media platforms, on college campuses, of course. No Safe Spaces uh, goes through the issues, gives you some real-world examples, enlists the reviews of uh, individuals across the political spectrum who believe in free minds and free speech and a free society. Hollywood doesn't want you to see this movie, which is the reason you should, among others, one of the reasons you should. It's available now for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. Check out No Safe Spaces this weekend with your family, you know, while you're social distancing. And uh, No Safe Spaces will help you decode interviews like the one we're about to go through, sort of mentioned in passing with uh, Wall Street Journal's Dan Henninger last hour, talking about the uh, cheap shotting and the blame gaming that's going on in leftist media uh, siloed pundits like former Obama National Security Advisor Susan Rice. You know, the uh, Benghazi truth teller, Susan Rice. Here's uh, what she had to say on Morning Joe, filling her role uh, as uh, part of the uh, collaboration against uh, or cloud collaboration to assign blame to the president. Uh, what he should have known because of what the Obama administration had put together and handed off to the Trump administration during the transition. It was inevitable. The only question was when. And that's why during the transition, we spent time trying to prepare our successors. We provided a 69-page playbook 
in effect, a war plan for the incoming administration to take off the shelf. I don't think they ever took it off the shelf. They probably put it in the trash can, uh, given how much regard they had for anything to be passed on. We established an office under my leadership in the National Security Council called the Global Health uh, Security and Biodefense Office with senior experts whose singular, singular role was to scan the globe for these types of potential outbreaks, to flag them early, and enable us with others to get on top of them so that they did not become epidemics, much less pandemics. So unfortunately, so all of that has, hey, Mika, uh, has been discarded to yeah. our great detriment. Hey, Mika, Mika, pipe down. Take it easy. Get a hold of yourself. Uh, okay, let's take uh, a couple of the statements Susan Rice made in turn. Uh, they left a 69-page playbook. Well, um, why don't you just implement it? Why don't you just implement your plan? I mean, there was a task force that was created after the H1N1 outbreak had subsided. You know, the outbreak between April of 09 and April of 10 that infected 60 million Americans that caused 275,000 hospitalizations and killed 13,000. That one. It included recommendations like uh, replenishing the national stockpile of N95 masks with all uh, considering all the those that had been utilized in response to that pandemic. Did you do that? Took all the time to put together this plan. Why not execute it? So you leave the next administration, and particularly since you thought it was going to be Hillary Clinton. So you leave the next administration ready to go. So now, now they know what to do with the materials that you've stockpiled for them because they got the materials and they got the plan. They don't need to worry about the materials. Hmm. As far as the office that was set up within the National Security Agency, setting up an office is the same thing as preparing. <laughs> it's always just, you know, put somebody, you know, assign a czar. And I love the use of Russian royalty terms. That's what Schumer and Pelosi wanted the president to do. May, may create a czar for uh, the response, military officer. Set up an office. That's uh, their way of continuing to propagate a lie that the quote unquote Susan, the office that Susan Rice uh, referred to was shut down by President Trump or uh, under John Bolton. Not true. There was offices consolidated, but the functionality was still there. You have to have like a uh, bifurcated office with uh, uh, nameplates, a little logo in order to make something real that you're serious about preparation, game planning, situational awareness. What a bunch of nonsense. What a bunch of absolute nonsense. And the total lack of institutional knowledge. Again, I will continue to beat this drum. You know, it's said that you have to teach a child uh, to say please and thank you uh, reflexively by telling him or her 2,000 times during their maturation. I feel that's the same way with respect to the D.C. press corps. You have to say something 2,000 times before anybody will even acknowledge it's been said, much less the fact that it's true. 30 years of reports, National Center for Intelligence, uh, all of the planning during the and, and discussions during the Bush administration. Colonel uh, Randy Larson and his bipartisan task force, their report from 2011. Wasn't implemented. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had the infrastructure that uh, we had. That was insufficient for testing. And insufficient. Per the crush of the infections. 
with respect to protect, personal protective equipment and ventilators and the like. And then Morning Joe followed up on that by prosecuting his case. Everybody knew in early January. We saw the clip of President Obama in 2014 predicting this. Go back to 2005. George W. Bush was talking about it. Bill Gates in 2015. Even HHS Secretary Azar in 2019 said a pandemic was what kept him up at night. But then the president was even getting warnings in early January from the CDC, from his National Security Council, from the intel community in his daily briefings. Susan, this was something, I mean, the alarms were going off for this president for a long time, were they not? Absolutely. I mean, you just cataloged uh, in good shorthand. Lies. January 31st, Tony Fauci. We still have a low risk to the American public. January 31st, the same day that Trump uh, instituted the travel ban on China to the criticism of the likes of Morning Joe and Susan Rice as xenophobia. Three days earlier, January 28th, that same HHS secretary, Alex Azar, that Susan Rice mentioned, the risk to any individual American is extremely low. Mid-January, the WHO was still discounting the idea that the virus was transmitted human to human. That's just not true. CDC press release on January 24th, the immediate risk of this new virus to the American public is believed to be low. Is that an alarm bell, Joe? Is that what an alarm bell sounds like? And yet President Trump took that step with respect to the travel ban on China in spite of the criticism, the issue was testing in February and the bureaucratic bottlenecks at CDC and FDA, but particularly CDC. There was an issue there and it could have gone better. But uh, this uh, 2020 hindsight, that's not even 2020 hindsight, what you're getting from Morning Joe and Susan Rice. That is just making stuff up out of whole cloth and and pretending that for the last 30 years, these people remember morning uh, Joe Scarborough was a member of Congress. What did he do? Well, he was representing a district in Florida during his time in Congress on pandemic planning. Since these people apparently have, you know, third eye insights into a global pandemic instigation that uh, everybody's supposed to have. But in fact, nobody had, including them and including all the medical has, ha- experts that they otherwise lionize in present. Such a disgrace are these people. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, Attorney General William Barr gave an extended interview to Fox News Channel's Laura Ingram, in which he talked about more things than just what is in his purview as the United States Attorney General, including... uh, reopening America. When this period of time this uh, at the end of April expires, I think we have to uh, allow people to adapt more than we have and not just tell people to go home and hide under the bed, but allow them to to use other ways, social distancing and other means uh, to protect themselves. Well, uh, that's consistent with the Washington Post story that suggests that uh, President Trump is uh, fairly intent on moving to May 1 as the date at which to begin a phased reopening of the country. But is that even fast enough? That's three weeks from now. What's happened in the past three weeks? And I understand there are ameliorative measures that are now just starting to 
be effective, uh, take effect. Um, but still, seven, 16 million people for, file first-time unempl- uh, unemployment claims in the last three weeks, even if it doesn't continue at that pace. And three weeks from now, May 1, could we be looking at 20, 25 million unemployed Americans? How many more shuttered businesses? For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Lionel Shriver, contributor to The Spectator and Spectator USA, author of We Need to Talk About Kevin and the soon-to-be-released The Motion of the Body Through Space. She writes in her piece in uh, The Spectator, A broke society is a violent society. You think not uh, you think not being able to go to gym now is the bad part? No. How about what gym? How about why would I pay for a gym when I can't afford a liter of milk? Lionel Shriver, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. Um, and uh, it, we'll get to this, but um, it's it's remarkable. And you mentioned this in your piece, but I, I, I read your book, The Mandibles, too, and um it's the parallels are disturbing uh, the parallels with that dystopian novel that you wrote, which was quite good, but we'll get to that. Uh, first, I just want to get to your take because the thrust of your piece is uh, we are imperiling ourselves in this uh, lockdown condition in the West. Yeah, I uh, really think we need to apply a little sense of perspective. Um, I think most of us are under aware of how many people die every year anyway. And I think most Americans would be unaware of the fact that three million of their compatriots expire every year. Mm-hmm. And in comparison, I mean, not to minimize the deaths, that's a trap, but uh, in comparison, uh, about 15,000 that have died from the coronavirus wouldn't even register on a graph right now. So it's a matter of... Uh, not saying, oh, we, whether we buy, value lives versus money. Uh, money, the economy, they are made of lives. And uh, people need money to survive. And most importantly, we need a functional economic system to, to survive. That's how, that's how we've organized a very complex society. And given that complexity, it's very easy to disturb the balance, and that's what we're doing right now in a way that we've never experimented with before. And uh, so I I would argue for uh, lifting the lockdown as soon as possible. Um, and I think there are, are epidemiological reasons for doing that, not just uh, economic ones. Sure, herd immunity. Because if we flatten yeah. the curve too much, then we extend the uh, period of the viral epidemic much longer and if we flatten it too much, then we do not achieve herd immunity, and a resurgence in the autumn is guaranteed. Well, and, so and, even on the level of uh, control of disease, this lockdown may be dubious. And, and on the, the economic level, yeah. it is not dubious. We know exactly what it's doing to us, and, and it's deadly. And, and your point about uh, deaths, too. I mean, you know, it's okay when uh, modelers or public health professionals talk about uh, one hundred to two hundred forty thousand deaths or sixty thousand deaths that we're predicting, they're not uh, being heartless. But people are suggesting that there's a trade-off uh, between um, lives versus lives, not lives versus money, as you're describing. They're described as exactly. being heartless, like we're dismissing the lives of others. We're not actually. 
We're just saying. Yeah, this is a completely false right, proposition. Right. And and, and it, but it needs to be addressed because uh, you know what the appeal to sentimentality is, and and that's where I want to pick up when we return with Lionel Shriver, contributor to the Spectator, Spectator USA, author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, and the soon to be released The Motion of the Body Through Space. More with uh, Mrs. Lionel Shriver right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Lionel Shriver, contributor to The Spectator and Spectator USA, author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, which was made into a movie you probably remember, and soon to be released, The Motion of the Body Through Space. Uh, uh, Lionel Shriver, I, I want to pick up where we left off, and you addressed this in your piece in The Spectator uh, about um, uh, the appeal to sentimentality and the use of sentimentality by politicians when it comes to life and death. It's uh, ill-serving the public. I mean, obviously, the public is easy to upset about many people dying. Nobody wants to be seen as heartless. Uh, everyone wants to support their health care workers. Um, but... We need to support all workers, and we have, you know, what we need leaders for is uh, is not to play necessarily to the the easy emotion, but to have the big picture in mind and have everyone's larger uh, interests at heart and point us in the right direction. That's what that's what governments are supposed to do in moments of crisis. Yeah, one of the dangers right now, especially in the United States is that fact, data, becomes politicized mm. because uh, Trump is now associated with playing down the virus, and therefore, if you play down the right virus, you are right-wing. And e- even the application of any sort of perspective, you know, trying to say, look, uh, we're, we were going to lose 3 million people this year anyway. All of these deaths are too bad, but let's look at the data and let's examine whether a lot of the people who are dying now would have died this year anyway. Even, even allowing that kind of, of moderation, it, it becomes politicized. And it becomes, uh, when you've got a, a, what is now a, a real single line of governments across the world, uh, we all have to stay home to save lives, then, then that starts sounding treasonous. And uh, one of the things that has been most distressing to me about this uh, this period has been that I just I see very little dissent in the media. I see you know we I, I'm in London, but I get CNN, and I I never see any epidemiologists getting up and casting some some intelligent doubt on some of this data. I mean you've got Trump talking about oh you know we're risking 2.2 million lives. Very precise sounding, isn't it? But, you know, where did that number come from? If you know anything about computer modeling, you know that output is all about input. If you don't know what the lethality statistics were that came up with that number, then you can't trust it. And I feel that we're surrounded by propaganda. And that means that the, the first casualty is accurate information. Well, and, and here's the thing, too. It's uh, last year in the United States, or 2018 versus, uh, versus, uh, versus at present, talking about... Uh... COVID-19, 
2018, bad year for the flu. 80,000 Americans died from influenza. There wasn't even any discussion of doing anything draconian. Like it wasn't even done. a news story. It wasn't even a news story. But he, here, let me let me suggest something that makes uh, that that uh, probably drives a different response. Not that it legitimizes the response, but it's it just seems to me that it's the volume and the uh, compressed time frame and when this is all occurring that has generated uh, perhaps uh, this. Uh, overreaction and there is such a thing despite what a lot of people are saying overreaction to what the uh, net net will be from the spread of this virus well first off you've got bandwagoning on behalf of governments there are a few outliers like sweden who are saying no we're not going to close down our society we're going to take a few measures to try to make sure our health care system stays on top of this and we don't have too many excess deaths but you know the restaurants are open the cafes are open the hotels are open, but most governments are copying each other because, you know, we've got uh, we live in a, a time that we have information available to us from elsewhere. Everyone knows that everyone else is doing it. So no, very few government leaders uh, ever even consider something short of lockdown. But the other thing that's going on is a media frenzy, which is obsessed with a particular version of this story. Basically, they are hawking the idea that we are all trapped in a real-life disaster movie, and they are following that script. So any information that doesn't feed that narrative, as we say these days, is the enemy. It's a salient point you make. We're trying to achieve herd immunity, and instead we're achieving a herd mentality. Um, (laughs) Those those are not, not, not put. Um, I, I also wanted to get your reaction to this in terms of the sense of urgency about reopening the economy. I wonder if this has something to do with it, too, in terms of who's most being uh, pummeled and who is not. Uh, global employment in S&P 500 companies. In the United States, uh, employment in S&P 500 companies represents 17 percent of total employment. Small to medium-sized businesses, 83 percent. Obviously, the wealthiest companies have the biggest voice voices and the most influence. The small to medium-sized businesses are diffuse. They don't have the same political power. I wonder if that uh, is uh, one of the reasons why there's the, not the sense of urgency among the ruling class quarters that there would be if those numbers were reversed. Well, of course, the ruling class cares when the Dow goes down. That's how you get their attention. It's true that, uh, for the most part, wealthier Americans, are, are they have laptops, uh, they are usually uh, in in professions that can be executed remotely. And so they're not feeling the pinch in the same way that uh, someone who drives for Uber is. Uh, so I think that's that's an element. But certainly we're, we're dealing with a, a bigger problem than that. I mean, in fact, I get a little impatient of, uh, with the, the new... Uh, burgeoning of stories talking about how this is class issue and a race issue, however utterly predictable that would that w- was in in the United States. Um, I think one of the only uh, elements of this story that is healthy for the national mentality is the, uh, an awareness that this is something that we are all susceptible to, and we do not have to think of it in terms of race and class. Uh, so to, I'm I'm, I'm reluctant to say, oh, it's just you know, it's the upper echelon elite in their ivory towers, protected from the de- red death, and and uh, and are willing to let everyone else burn. But partly because you know, the, the elite is very, very, literally invested 
in the success of the economy. And you know, we can we can think, oh, who cares about their fat portfolios? But but I care about the pension funds of ordinary people. And if we do go into a depression, then those funds are going to be devastated. When we come back with best-selling author Lionel Shriver, I want to talk uh, about uh, your book, The Mandibles, from a few years back that was uh, potentially and unfortunately ahead of its time. More with Lionel Shriver when we return. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. We're back with best-selling author and spectator contributor Lionel Shriver. And uh, Mr. Shriver, I wanted to uh, pick up by talking about your book, uh, which I mentioned I actually read back a few years ago, called *The Mandibles*. Uh, you just know, you do note sort of the uh, messianic complex of, of many champagne socialists. You know, I, I'm going to be hurt, but um, which, but but I'm going to suffer so as to save my lessers. There is this whole um, camp, largely on the left that uh, glories in apocalypse. Yes. It, it's funny. People get high on it. I'm a little susceptible to it myself. I mean, you mentioned my book, The Mandibles, and that's about the economic collapse of the United States following uh, a renunciation of the national debt. Yeah, you're only so about a... The dollar d- becomes worthless. You were, I was 2029, say, it yeah. was supposed to be the 100th anniversary of the... Um, Oh, uh, Great the Depression. crash of the stock market. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, so you were 10 years ahead of time. No, hopefully not, but, I mean, it, it's remarkable. I've well, I, that's the thing is I don't want to be prescient. Yes, I understand. I don't want people coming to me and say, I can't believe how right you got it. Right. I've gone through the imaginative process of picturing what the United States looks like when the economy ceases to function and the dollar doesn't buy anything anymore, which we are definitely flirting with. And, you know, the picture is terrible. It's frightening. It was fun as a fictional exercise. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be on the wrong side of the book cover. Just the, the premise of the, the book, too, as you referenced, but it's, it's the United States defaulting on its debt, and that sparks this uh, global conflagration, conflagration. Well, I saw an interview on television last night with uh, uh, an economist blithely predicting that, uh, oh, any number of countries uh, following this epidemic are likely to default on their debt. And by the way, that's also going to hit your pension funds because, yeah. you know, you have bonds from all over the world and they'll suddenly become worthless. And who knows, you know, Trump uh, mooted the idea of canceling the national debt, defaulting on the national debt when he was campaigning. It's not out of the question. But uh, when you don't pay your debts, then you also uh, can't borrow. And that's what in my book, not be too self-promotional, but I have worked it out anyway, when you can't borrow then you start running the printing press to beat the band. And that's when inflation really kicks in. Right. And uh, and frankly, uh, again, um, not because I want uh, this to be uh, foreshadowing, your book to be foreshadowing, but uh, you have people, uh, Democrat members of Congress, proposing print up a couple of trillion dollar coins and just continue to run the printing presses and give people money for a year after whenever this ends. So Yeah, I saw I saw that bill. Um, put together by the Fab Four, as I recall. Yes. Um, 
I found that thing about minting two trillion dollar coins uh, kind of childish. We're living in some somewhere between um, a dystopian novel like The Mandibles and a comic book. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly. Oh, yeah, where. or a fairy tale. I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing that that uh, I mean, it sounds like The Hobbit or something. <laughs> yes, right. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Where is uh, Gollum when you need him? Uh, Lionel Shriver, contributor to The Spectator, Spectator USA, author of We Need to Talk About Kevin and the soon to be released The Motion of the Body Through Space and Check out her piece in The Spectator as well on the topic that uh, we were discussing, which I will tweet out. Lionel Schreiber, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Take care. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Proft Show. I hope everyone has a happy and joyous and blessed Easter and Passover. Uh, I want to start uh, with uh, this piece by uh, Joseph Ladapo, who is an associate professor of UCLA's associate professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine, it just doesn't sound right. David Geffen School of Medicine it should be a record label, not a medical school. But nonetheless, uh, he paid for that uh, name. On, he paid for the name on the building, so that's good enough for me. Are shutdowns enough, Professor Ladapo? Are shutdowns enough? He writes, no, despite the efforts, there is enough human contact to ensure the virus will spread. There's still enough. Take a look at the long list of essential services and exemptions on California's COVID-19 website, for example. Shutdowns will cause the virus to spread more slowly, but it will spread nonetheless. I don't know that this point uh, has been emphasized enough, although it's been emphasized more this week than in previous. You know, flattening the curve is not eliminating the virus again. I feel like I've repeated this as much as they've repeated uh, washing your hands, they being the politicians. It spreads it out so you don't overtax the healthcare system. So you buy time for antiviral therapies. Right. But it's not eliminating the spread, much less the existence. Uh Going back to the professor, Dr. Ladapo, when shutdowns end, the virus will spread and COVID-19 deaths will increase. Without a vaccine and community immunity or herd immunity, this outcome is all but guaranteed. The only thing that will temporarily quell it in the near term, short of a miracle treatment, is another shutdown. But states will only get one pass at this. Once lifted, the appetite for a repeat shutdown will be tepid at best, even in left-leaning states. The reality of the shutdown's cost will be fresh. Some argue stopping COVID-19 and protecting the economy are one and the same. Although this is true, it's too late to do either. Accepting this reality will help us make better decisions. Embracing reality also makes other things clear. If we can't shut down for 18 months on the gamble that an effective vaccine will arrive, will, will arrive how long will it be worth committing millions of families to poverty and uprooting lives, education, and every other part of our economy politicians have largely dodged this question right i know it's the one that i continue to posit have been for weeks to those who believe in the magical thinking that they can immunitize the eschaton and avoid the ugly trade-offs that human existence demands 
Mm-hmm. Already, uh, going back to the professor, ethicists are helping us think about how to allocate ventilators when hospitals run short. Many older doctors and nurses have to, um, uh, and how many, uh, ask the question, and how many older doctors and nurses have to die before we seriously discuss allowing older healthcare workers, say above 59, to opt out of the dangerous settings like emergency departments and hospital wards. My experience caring for patients with suspected or diagnosed COVID-19 at UCLA has made it clear to me that treating them in the same setting as patients with other diagnoses is unsafe, even with personal protective equipment. Many difficult decisions lie ahead. We stand the best chance of making good decisions if we consider everything at stake and not only the singular goal of reducing COVID-19 deaths. Well, it's nice to hear that sort of analysis uh, sobriety from a medical professor, from a doctor. Those voices haven't been presented frequently enough over the last several weeks. But it is um, increasingly a question that can't be avoided. And so, again, the topic uh, Thursday night's press conference uh, or, or during Thursday night's press conference, uh, press briefing, this came up. And uh, interesting to listen to for all the criticism of Trump and praise of Dr. Fauci. Guess what? They're largely on the same page when it comes to reopening the country, um, even if perhaps they're both on the wrong page or not uh, doing it with enough urgency. They're still on the same page. I don't know how you suggest one is acting with reckless disregard for human life and the other is a hero. Often people say reopen the government like it's a a light switch that goes on and off for the entire country. We have a very large country with really different patterns of disease and outbreaks in different parts of the country. So it's not going to be a one size fits all. It's going to be what is the kinetics of an outbreak? Is it on the way down? Is it essentially out? Is it still smoldering and possibly going up? I think you're going to have to take it individually. And Marks that you're looking at, though? I mean, are there certain some numbers that you're looking at, some data that you would like to see? What would you like to see yeah. before that happens? Yeah, well, I, I will allow Dr. Burks to come up with just my own opinion. I don't think they're going to be benchmarks that are going to be consistent from one to the other. For example, I would not want to pull back at all in New York until I was clear that that curve really was doing what we've seen in other countries, a very steep decline down. And we had the capability, if there was a resurgence, of having everything in place to be able to do the containment as opposed to struggling with mitigation with what we've been doing. That's different than a relatively smaller city, town, or whatever you, in the Midwest or mountain regions, which is generally very well controlled. What I would want to see, do we have the capability of doing the isolation, contact tracing, and suppression of it? So it really varies differently. Yeah, which is uh, essentially what Trump has been saying for the last week is, uh, you know, phased reopening, looking at places that uh, don't have a high incidence of cases, as well as uh, with the antibody testing I talked about earlier in the show, a handle on the percentage of the population that is effectively immunized through having it and being asymptomatic and having it pass through essentially, essentially and effectively immunized from the uh, virus. So you have a real handle on what the worst case scenario would be if you had an increase in the number of cases. So you have the necessary resources to treat the anticipated 
uh, population that would need hospitalization and so forth. Also, the combination, you know, the data that I would like to, to see, too, and broken out and presented state by state daily. And by the way, there's some good good state by state data at covid dot com. It's one of the stat sites I look at covid dot com. But it doesn't have the following data, age data, age data by uh, for infected, for hospitalized, as well as for fatalities. I want the age data because one of the arguments you make then too, particularly after you get more of the testing information so you can model more accurately is to say, and you have a representative sample so you can model more accurately is you say, yeah, okay. Um, we're going to send people say, you know, 20, well, 18 to 49 go back to work and those over 50, or maybe it's over 60. We're going to have you continue to shelter in place until we reach a certain uh, percentage of, uh, of of herd immunity in a particular community or in a particular region or in a particular state. Okay, makes sense. But let's let's get more data, more enriched data, and then make some informed decisions. I mean, most people have are just looking at the CNN tickers, total cases, deaths. Uh, in globally in the United States, that's what you get. Well, in Illinois, for example, my home state, there are uh, six, there were 80,000 tested round numbers, 80,000 tested so far, 16,000 positive, 64,000 negative of the 16,000 tested positive. You have about uh, 5,500 that are still in a hospital setting, hospitalized generally in ICU or on a ventilator, which, by the way, is a fraction of what our healthcare infrastructure capacity provides going back to, you know, the models versus the reality on the ground. But what Fauci is proposing is the same thing that Trump has been saying that bears repeating in terms of uh, who, not to mention how often Trump has said, you know, I will heavily rely on the input from doctors Fauci and Burks before I make a go, no go decision on guidelines that would be, made public that would suggest whatever counties in, in state X can begin reopen should begin reopening. People here should be going back to work or people in these age cohorts in these states should be going back to work, something like that. Clearly it's turning out with New York accounting for 40% of all COVID-19 deaths, the top five States in terms of case incidents accounting for 58% of all cases in America, one tenth of the States counting for 50 eight percent of all cases, one state accounting for 40 percent of all deaths. Clearly, it's not the case that every state is going to become New York or New Jersey or even Louisiana or Michigan or Illinois. That's just not the case. It wouldn't seem. So now we need to have these discussions that were framed pretty nicely by this UCLA medical professor. And then we need to have decisions made. And then we need to explain the questions that we debated and the basis for the decisions at those task force briefings. And bring everybody along with us, meaning with their elected leaders and their appointed policymakers. This is Dan Prof. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, what do you think of the uh, the daily 
coronavirus task force briefings headed up by President Trump? Are they uh, a waste of time or are they a waste of too much time? Two hours too long? I mean, is two hours too long? Not are they two hours too long, the entirety of them. Some of them go that long. Yeah. I think the Wall Street Journal has a point, and they're opining this week that uh, it'd be better if the uh, pressers were kept to a tight 45 minutes, maybe 45 minutes of uh, the various uh, principals speaking on their areas of uh, contribution uh, and expertise, and then 15 minutes for questions so you don't have an hour of redundant questions from a uh, intellectually stultified D.C. press corps. I mean, that is interminable, and I watch all of them. But I I think the Wall Street Journal's criticism of Trump this week is a bit misguided. Um, Oh, by the way, as is President Trump's tweet in response, the Wall Street Journal always forgets to mention that the ratings of the White House press briefings are through the roof. Monday Night Football Bachelor finale, according to New York Times, and his only way for me to escape the fake news and get my views across. Wall Street, Wall Street Journal is fake news, exclamation point. Of course, <laughs> how did that kicker? Uh, and he's responding to uh, editorials, most notably uh, the one this week from the journal, Trump's Wasted Briefings. Uh, they uh, talk about, uh, argue that uh, Trump uh, briefings have become less about defeating the virus and more about the many feuds of Donald Trump. That while they while they began as a, quote, good idea to educate the public about the dangers of the virus, how Americans should change their behavior, what the government is doing to combat it. In the beginning, they showed seriousness of purpose, action to mobilize public and private resources, a sense of optimism. But sometime in the last three weeks, writes the journal, they seem to have concluded that the briefings could be a showcase for him. Mr. Trump concluded that. Perhaps they substitute in his mind for the campaign rallies he can no longer hold because of the risk. Perhaps he resented the media adulation of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Whatever the reasons, the briefings are now all about the president. They last 90 minutes or more. Trump dominates the stage. His first-rate health experts have become supporting actors and sometimes barely that. Vice President Pence, who leads the task force, doesn't get on stage until the last 15 minutes or so, and that becomes the most informative part of the session since... Mr. Pence understandably knows details the president doesn't. One of the ironies of his presidency is that Mr. Trump claims to despise the press, yet so eagerly plays its game. Well, there's a lot there. Let's just stop there for a moment. Yeah, Trump despises the press and eagerly plays its game. You can do both. You can realize these people are your enemies and uh, treat their uh, unfairness, uh, nay, idiocy, Uh, with disgust while also manipulating them to your ends. Right? Because that's a forum where you're on your home field. These briefings can't be filtered. And uh, the press has to risk exposing uh, themselves, members of the press have to risk exposing themselves the same way President Trump has to risk what he communicates and how he communicates it. And so um, while the journal, the uh, format may be a little bit too freewheeling and frenetic for the journal with Trump going off on tangents. And there are certainly moments where, you know, um, my uh, forehead plants into my palm and then I immediately disinfect it with uh, hand sanitizer. Uh, But here's the thing. 
how many opportunities do you have for long form interplay between the president and the press, as well as the those around the president who are informing the decisions that he makes? Where you get past the 10 or 15 second soundbite. Where you get past the uh, misrepresentative Chiron. Or the interpretation of what transpired in something that you couldn't watch in Toto unless you, you know, hunted for it on the dark web. But you can see on uh, readily available cable or even network uh, television the president and his team talking about the range of issues associated with the public health and economic health decisions they're making. Otherwise we're treated to cable news shows, the interview programs, the round table programs, or everybody's in their silo or to the extent that most of these cable networks allow uh, anyone center right on There's somebody like Michael Steele on MSNBC who's been properly housebroken to be uh, to fill a slot. To give the air of uh, a broad discussion among people who have some differences, who come from different places, give that air, but not the reality. Playing a role. Not expanding the parameters of discussion. See, I think it's so important. Yes, Trump has risk, just as he does at his rallies, if you want to make that comparison, fine. He has risk every time he communicates. Trump's communication style is not my particular style. Both just because he uses too many adverbs in the same ones, as well as because of what I just said, the tangents, uh, the, the, you know, forays into the bizarre talking about pardoning Joe Exotic this week, for example. I mean, I know he was joking along with that New York Post reporter, but it's it's just tone deaf. It's tone deaf for the reporter to ask. It's tone deaf for the president to not say, you know what? Get serious. You're wasting people's time here. Yes, the, the American public need lighthearted moments, but not in the Q&A session when you're when you have an opportunity to extract real value for the people watching. Don't waste my time. Add value to the time I'm devoting. Give me value in response to the time I'm devoting about the pressing issues that impact public health and economic health. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So, I, you know, and, and by the way, uh, uh, there's also maybe he should bifurcate, you know, have Pence and the actual task force members, the medical professionals. You know, they do uh, one portion of it. Uh, segmented from Trump, who does then makes a five minute statement and does Q&A and he can go back and forth with Jim Acosta for an hour. No, I don't think so. I think everybody together, the whole mishmash of it, how it actually is unfiltered and let the American people put their own filters on it and make their own decisions about what they're seeing, who's being transparent, who's acting in good faith. I don't think these task force have become all about Trump. There are moments like that. They're, They're too much about Trump. I agree, but they haven't been all about Trump. He has raised up and leveled up all of the principal members of this task force for the work they've done. He couldn't he's effusive in his compliments. And uh, has actually a pretty good level of detail working off a crib sheet of notes on some of the details about supplies and uh, uh, conversations with public officials, the ones that he has, as well as the ones that Pence has. No, no, I say uh, maybe yes. Cut him down 
and only allow reporters to ask the same questions twice, which would cut these briefings down by at least 30 minutes. But keep it freewheeling. Keep it uh, the battle royale that it is between President Trump and the D.C. press corps, because that's honest. And the American people deserve that honesty and so much more honesty from their elected officials, as well as the so-called fourth estate, particularly during this time. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. In his uh, extended interview with Laura Ingram, Attorney General Barr made some uh, important points about uh, takeaways from what we've experienced so far in combating this uh, pandemic, uh, what has crystallized a bit more uh, thinking about uh, policies on a go forward basis across a range of issues, some silver linings. One is to, to uh, again, once again, appreciate the importance of borders and controlling who is coming into the country. I felt for a long time, as much as people talk about global warming, that the, the real threat to human beings are microbes and being able to control uh, disease. And, and that starts with controlling your border. Uh, so I, I think people will be more attuned to more protective measures, but also the supply chain issue. The idea that uh, much of what we need to protect the health of the American people is in the control of foreign governments who can interdict it and say we're not shipping stuff to the United States when everyone else in the world wants it during a pandemic it was a crazy, crazy uh, situation to get into. It happened before this administration, and the president's trying to deal with it. And it's worth noting, Attorney General Barr is not just... Uh a law enforcement uh, uh, official, an experienced one, being an attorney general previously. He was also a corporate attorney. He was general counsel for GTE. He was also uh, uh, a member of a number of corporate boards. So he has some business acumen as well when he speaks on not just border security, but also with respect to supply chains. Uh, Something else that uh, should also be crystal to us at this juncture who presents the greatest threat? What country presents the greatest threat to America's interests across a range of issues, not just uh, national security and election integrity? Who is the bigger threat to America's election security, Russia or China? In my opinion, it's China. And, and not just to the uh, election process, uh, but I think across the board, there's, there's simply no comparison. China is a, is a uh, very serious threat to the United States, geopolitically, economically, militarily, uh, and uh, a threat to the integrity of our institutions, given their ability to uh, influence things. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Tim Andrews, who is the executive director of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance and has written a little bit about uh, both the World Health Organization as well as China and the intersection of the two that has been a hot topic of discussion this week. Tim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity and having me on the show. Uh, is your um, assessment, uh, what is your assessment of what Bill Barr had to say about uh, China across the board and not just as it pertains to international organizations like the World Health Organization? I think that 
he's absolutely correct in the threat China poses. I mean, China is a has posed a geopolitical threat to these United States, and you have seen its expansionist international policies through to take over international organizations, its hostile actions in the South China Seas to our shipping routes, to trade, to U.S. interests overall, to elections, as you was previously mentioned. So I completely agree about the threat that the Chinese Communist Party causes. And uh, as it pertains to the uh, the Chinese uh, communist ability to seemingly manipulate the World Health Organization, including uh, its uh, senior leadership, starting with uh, Dr. Tedros, uh, give us some backstory there that you provided in your piece, The Federalist. So there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that a key reason why this pandemic has spread and we're seeing the devastating effects around the world is that the World Health Organization, which whose job is meant to be preventing these pandemics, instead decided to be a PR mouthpiece for the Chinese Communist Party. They helped the Chinese Communist Party cover up what was going on in when this pandemic first started. They praised the Chinese Communist Party for, quote, leadership and strong action at the same time when they were locking up doctors who were speaking out against this, when they were arresting journalists who were trying to lead the world, to warn the world, the World Health Organization was praising China. The World Health Organization was saying that travel bans, which some countries brought in successfully, and we did as well, were racist. They were saying, no, no, there's no pandemic, there's no national emergency. At a time, everyone knew this was happening. It took them until March to send an advanced team of doctors in because the Chinese government lobbied them against it. If they were truthful with the world's people, we would have had policies in place weeks before they happened, and the impact would have been severely limited. Now, this has been a concerted effort by the Chinese government. And, and uh, let, let's just, just hold right there because we'll come back and I want to pick up there. So you, said you did a nice job framing it. And then I want to get specifically into the relationship between the Chinese communist government and the government, say, of Ethiopia from whence Dr. Tedros hails. More with Tim Andrews, executive director of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Tim Andrews, Executive Director of the Taxpayer Protection Alliance on the Dan Proft Show. And Tim, thanks for holding with us. We appreciate it. We were talking about. Uh, China's ability to manipulate the World Health Organization and have it serve as a mouthpiece for the Chinese Communist government. And uh, we were about to get into uh, some of the details that you provided in your piece at thefederalist.com about perhaps even a more intimate relationship between the Chinese Politburo and the head of the World Health Organization. Sure. So Dr. Tedros was the Chinese candidate to lead the World Health Organization. China aggressively lobbied for him against other much more qualified candidates who were also running. So he was the handpicked Chinese candidate. And you can tell that the very first thing he did, his first press conference upon getting elected, was saying that the World Health Organization will never recognize Taiwan. Like you can already see from that what his priorities were. And shortly after that, he made brutal dictator Robert Mugabe, a key China ally, a goodwill ambassador. 
the, the World Health Organization doesn't, has never seen a dictatorship they don't like. But you can see originally from his early actions that he was in the pocket of China. And to find out the reasons, you follow the money. You look at, he was a former minister in the Marxist Ethiopian government, and you look at all of the money that China gave Ethiopia, both before his actions and almost immediately after his appointment, they decided to give the $80 million for the World Health Organization to build a new center in Ethiopia. So while the United, our taxpayers, the, you know, the US, pays hundreds of millions of dollars to fund the World Health Organization, China bypasses it and just buys off individual votes and individual key members and their countries so they can do China's bidding. So we pay our taxes to the World Health, to the World Health Organization to support it, but the Chinese Communist Party simply buys off all the key officials, which is why they do their bidding. There's a, there's a debate going on now among those who concede the, the point that you've raised about uh, the corruption at the World Health Organization and uh, its service as a, as a conveyor of Chinese communist agitprop, as you were describing. Uh, is it reformable? Is it just a personnel problem at the World Health Organization and it can be corrected with a change in personnel? Or is it a structure problem and uh, the West, need, starting with America, needs to pull out of the WHO and set up a, a new international organization, perhaps as John Yu from uh, UC Berkeley argued perhaps something akin to the uh, International Atomic Energy Administration, where you have uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, groups of individuals who do the inspections and then the reporting to the world. So you know, there's early warning about the potential of pandemics like this, um, rather than the, the structure as, uh, as, as currently uh, informs the World Health Organization's decision making. So the reason why I'm skeptical of reform and just shuffling people around is that this isn't a new problem. This is a structural endemic problem in the World Health Organization. And you saw their failures for pretty much similar reasons in dealing with the Ebola outbreak, where all of these leaked emails came out saying, oh, we can't offend these politicians in Africa because unsaid, we rely on their votes, so we're not going to do anything about it because they don't want us to hurt tourism and thousands of people died as a result. So you've seen this now as an endemic structural problem in the World Health Organization. Now, there is a need for international coordination to deal with pandemics. And if the World Health Organization actually cared about these sorts of things, then there would be a role for it. But when you look at their track record of failure, you look at the fact that they spend most of their budget on luxury first-class travel, like more on travel than on AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, hepatitis combined a year with first-class flights those sorts of things constantly. I look at this and I think uh, because of the voting system to get the leadership in place, that countries like China can just buy off all of these African delegates and then they get a majority, that there's a real struggle with being able to get it to be effective. And maybe, if not full withdrawal, we should at least significantly cut our funding, work with our allies and come up with an international response with countries much like we've been able to do to get around other UN agencies, such as what you mentioned. How, how did you react to Dr. Tedros's uh, effort to uh, deflect attention away from him and his relationship with China, for example, in addition to the pronouncements the World Health Organization made, he made uh, in January through January, really uh, until they declared a pandemic in March, uh, that turned out to be uh, woefully wrong when they or woefully late when they weren't outright outright wrong. When he suggested that, you know, the attacks on him are racist in nature and they're being instigated by Taiwan. 
I mean, his comments were the unhinged ramblings of someone who previously hasn't been used to criticism and scrutiny. He's somebody somebody who had been part of a Marxist quasi-dictatorship to then being part of this international body with close links to dictatorships, never really has come under scrutiny. And he's now, I think, just starting to break down about the fact that people are realising that he's personal failings have been responsible by this, which is why he's lashing out. He's coming up with these crazy conspiracy theories that it's all secretly orchestrated by Taiwan. Um, because, And you, you could see the World Health Organization and under his leadership has deliberately tried to sideline Taiwan. So we can't look, they've tried to suppress successes that Taiwan has had in combating COVID-19. Um, so he's, and he's quasi threat that if you will criticise me, you know, this will lead to more body bags. I mean, this is absolutely extraordinary. And I think it shows exactly the calibre and the character of the sort of person we're dealing with. I, I think you make a salient point, too. You know, dismissal of Taiwan's existence by both him and his number two guy, Bruce Alward, uh, in that interview with the Taiwanese reporter, and then uh, the 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 uh, effort to uh, rebuke the United States for rebuking the World Health Organization. They seem to have a real problem with free societies, small d democratic countries, as opposed to uh, tyrannical ones. I mean, the interview with uh, Dr. Eilwart was absolutely extraordinary. You, you could, I mean, people can watch in real time him pretending to drop out, him refusing to answer questions about Taiwan. But interestingly, and few people know this, he has form about this. He's the person who was responsible for a lot of the mismanagement of Ebola in Africa. And one of the key points about him was he blew $400,000 in private helicopters because he refused to take a jeep between two different towns because he didn't want to go on, quote, muddy roads. Or at a time when doctors were struggling with basic supplies in Africa in Ebola, he went through $400,000 on private helicopters because he thought himself too important to travel by jeep like everyone else did. That is this a, is the sort of mindset at the top leadership level of the World Health Organization. That is a just a perfect postscript, isn't it? He is Tim, Tim Andrews. He's the executive director of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. Check out his piece at thefederalist.com. U.S. funds World Health Organization that bootlegs China with deadly results. Tim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. When you have some downtime this uh, Easter weekend, Passover weekend, uh, consider No Safe Spaces, which is now available to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. This is the political documentary put together by our friend and colleague, Dennis, my colleague, Dennis Prager, and Adam Carolla, that reveals how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas when you're talking about social media platforms, when you're talking about college campuses, of course, when you're talking about Hollywood. That's why the streaming services uh, haven't allowed No Safe Spaces to uh, be available through their uh, sites and why nosafespaces.com is making no safe spaces available for a limited time. It's important to see, it's important to understand what's happening in so many of the important cultural spaces and institutions in this country, as well as uh, ways in which you can join the intellectual battle to preserve a free society where free speech reigns. 
Check out No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. And uh, play me off into this Easter weekend with this wonderful, uplifting story in a time of death and suffering um, and uh, with the resurrection in the offing. Uh, I want to introduce you to Alma Deutscher. Uh, I became aware of her through this uh, piece that Barton Swain wrote in the Wall Street Journal about this uh, musical prodigy. 15 years old, she is a composer, a pianist, a violinist. Uh, What you're about to hear at the outset of her uh, highlights, some of her musical highlights, is uh, her violin concerto number one, something she composed at age 12. Uh, It's uh, exciting to have a budding Beethoven or Mozart in our midst. So uh, something uplifting into Easter weekend, the incredible, otherworldly, godly talent of Alma Deutscher. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.